Welcome to Lapeer Community Church. We are so glad you're here this morning. Um, welcome back, my ukulele. It's been a while since I've got to play this little little baby. Anyway, so I'm really glad you're here. And I also would like just a couple of things. Just um, It's very easy to become uh, relaxed as you get used to the environment and things like that. So I just want to remind you that when you're up from your seats, please wear your mask in consideration of other people. Um, and I know that everybody's in different places and where they think about masking and everything else. We do not want to be a part of the the political atmosphere fighting over things like masks, right? So it's just easier to, to everybody just wear them when you're up and about and um, be considerate of one another. Some people, if you have a, a condition where you cannot wear a mask, if somebody's not wearing a mask, assume that's what's going on so that you don't have any attitudes about that either. We just want to um, be the body of Christ in difficult times. 
And it's actually difficult times where it's easiest to show that we're supposed to be different if we remember we're supposed to be different. So I'd like to ask you to um, also, one more thing. Also, like when you know the songs and we're trying not to sing, and sometimes you notice you're singing when you're not supposed to be, like, oh. If you think that's, if that's hard for you, just go ahead and put your mask on and sing through the mask, okay? Don't belt it out and overcompensate, though, okay? Just, just put the mask on and, and enjoy the music if you'd like to do that that way. So, ready? Deeper still as you call me. 
still as you call me, deeper still into love, love, love. You're a good, good father, it's who you are, it's who you are, it's who you are, and I'm loved by you, it's who I am, it's who I So if we could have the children come up, wear your masks, come up on the side of the stage, it would be fantastic. It's, it is green. Oh, okay. Okay, hi guys. Well, you don't have to spread out that far. Come all over here. Hi. If you guys can scooch back just a tad. Anybody else coming? Hi. Hey, guys, you got to scooch back just a little bit, okay? Yes, because of that. You don't want me breathing on you. So... <laughs> oh, good week. Good week. Yes. Yes. I had a good week. I got a new kitten. Yeah, so cool. Um but I have been thinking and thinking and thinking and praying and praying and praying and I had to read the story of David over and over and over. Your name is David. That's a great name. I love the name David. But you want to know why I was reading it over and over and over? Because I kept thinking, at the end of his life, God said, David is a man after my own heart. And I thought, wow, I would love it if when people see you, they say, wow, there's a David. His heart is after God. There's an Aubrey. Her heart is after God. When I die, I hope that people say about me, she loved God. Her heart was after God. But I have to tell you, there were some of these stories in the story of David that I thought, okay, he really messed up really bad. How is it that they say he had a heart after God? How many of you remember that he was a shepherd? Remember, as a little boy, he was a shepherd, and he killed a bear and a lion with his bare hands. Now, did he do that on his own? He did not. And when he killed Goliath, did he do that on his own? No. When he became 
the military leader and was fighting in the battles that God sent him to? Did he do that by himself? No. No. You know what I read? Exactly that. God knew. He told Goliath, you come to me with a spear and a javelin, and you know what? I come to you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. We need to remember that. When things look hard, when things look tough, you need to remember who's with you. Who's with you? God is, always. And you know when else David remembered God? When he was about to do something wrong. I think I was the one who told you guys the story of David and his army guys, and they they asked that guy for help, and the guy said no. And David was like, well... I'm certain that's not going to happen. You guys get your swords. We are going to take care of these people. And remember, Abigail came out and said, don't, don't do this. Then you'll be known for doing something bad, and you don't want that. And David said, you are right. God sent you to help me not do something wrong. And you remember that in your life. Who in your life do you think God gave you to help you not do things that are wrong? your parents. Guess what? He gave me parents too. And you know what he gave me when I'm older? He gave me friends who love God, who will always go, "Ah, Connie, I'm not sure you want to do that. God always is watching out for us. And then David, at the end of his life, I'm going to tell you what he prayed right before. I was going to tell you about Solomon, his son, But I have a feeling you'll get to hear that story. If you don't get to hear it, tell your parents to read to you about it because it's a very cool story. But I hated for us to see all these stories of David and then not tell about what happened to David at the end. David had to die. It happens to all of us. And at the end of his... It's true, that's, that's usually when it happens. And at the end of David's life, this is what he prayed. And I hope that you don't wait till the end of your life to pray this. I hope that you realize this every day. And this is something that you and your parents can talk about. This is what he prayed. He said, yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Everything. Yours is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power. And now we give you the praise and the glory for that. And I looked at David's life and I thought, it's not that David didn't do some bad things, but when David did do bad things, he remembered God. When David had good things in his life happen, He remembered God. At the end of his life, when David was, he knew he was going to die, he remembered God. And you want to know the last thing he told his son who was going to be king after him? Remember God. That is the most important thing you can do to become a person who has a heart after God. And I hope that's what you want in your life. And if you will read this book, and ask your parents. They will help you to become people who love God. Let's pray. 
God, thank you so much that you have not forgotten us. God, that you who were the God in the beginning and the creation and you who will be the God when this earth ends, you are our God. You are the God of my life. You are the God of little David's life. You're the God of the lives of each of these little kids who are sitting here today. God, we have that same power at our hands. We have that same God at our hands that David did. God, remind us to come to you, to turn to you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this time with kids. Thank you for their parents who brought them here today. Amen. Okay, we're going to go to the room. I hope you guys know where we're going because I don't. Um, you do? Okay. Well, s- s- going outside. Okay. Um, no, no, we're not. Um, so I'm going to listen to the big people on this one. So, okay, you guys follow Miss Mindy? Yes. Now they're going with their parents. Go ahead. All right, good morning. We are in the reading uh, week 26, I believe now. Am I correct? Anybody keeping up? Week 26. And we are um, beginning 1 Kings. What did you say? Got a heckler on the front row. Um. At any rate, um, we, are, we are starting the life of Solomon. <clears throat> and um, if you're reading through these passages, you'll find that the uh, peaceful switch of handover power isn't always peaceful. Matter of fact, most of the time it isn't. We're used to it because our, our constitution and government's been set up in such a way that there's a, pr- a peaceful transfer of power up until this point. And um, well, you know, but the, the reality is, is we're used to that, and and most kingdoms of the world are not, and um, certainly in ancient times that wasn't the case. So it wasn't a completely peaceful transition, and Solomon um, begins to take power, and so he becomes king, and then he, uh, what's going on is the Ark of the Covenant, with the Ten Commandments in it is located in the city of Jerusalem. But many of the things that they performed sacrifices with is in the town of Gibeon. And so Solomon goes to Gibeon and offers all these sacrifices. And there, he meets God in a dream. So if you'll open up your Bibles to chapter 3 of First Kings, we'll start down in verse 5 and read, and I'll stop a little bit on the way down here. I won't... Um, Go through the whole passage, but we're going to go all the way through verse 14. But it starts out, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and said, Ask what I shall give you. Now, I'll stop right there. I would love for God to ask me that question. Am I alone? I mean, I'm like a little jealous. I'm thinking, I would love for God to ask me that question. And what would you ask for depends on what's going on in your life at that time, most of the time. The wiser you become, the less things you would ask for. Your list of things, your, your Christmas list from God would probably be reduced to one or two things. And, um, 
as, as we kind of understand this, Solomon only has one thing that he wants. And God likes what he asks for, and you can tell what he appreciates that he didn't ask for. So if it's on your list of things to ask for, the things that God appreciated that Solomon didn't ask for these, you might want to ixnay these things off your list, right? Like the wishing for more wishes, right? That would come off right away. But you'll see what God actually praises him for when he does his ask. So verse 6, he says, And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you, and you have kept him this great, uh, kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on the throne to this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of David, my father. Although I am but a child or a little child, I do not know how to come in or to go out or to come in. So, what happens here is well. Let me continue reading. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for a multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that it may be discerned between, the, between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, uh, your great people? Now, um, <clears throat> to understand this context a little bit, he's asking for wisdom, and God is going to grant it, and we'll get to that in a second. But understand the ask Remember, I said a lot of times if you were given one wish, it would depend on what's going on in your life. If you had a child that was dying of cancer in the hospital, it would be different than just asking for wisdom maybe, right? Just the urgency of what's happening in your life would change what's going on. Well, what's going on in his life, he suddenly receives a kingdom and it's the first transfer of power that goes peacefully and there's no enemies for him to attack, or that he's being attacked by at this time. So the, the kingdom completely changes from David to Solomon. So think about this for a second. Even if you're really familiar with the scriptures, you would understand that David built the kingdom. It is through his, it is God winning battles they shouldn't have won. All the way through First and Second Solomon, even through Saul, they won battles against superior enemies, and with vastly smaller numbers of, of warriors and was able to conquer all the territory they did and they subdued many nations around them that they now have control over and all of those enemies have been put in their place. Now Israel becomes a powerhouse in the ancient world like Egypt was. This is their time where they are going to be the great nation. And you go through world histories, nations rise and nations fall. China at one time was huge. Mongolian, Mongolia at one time was an empire that was amazing. All these empires rise and they fall. This is the rise of the Israel uh, nation. Probably wouldn't call it an empire, but maybe for that time, maybe. You know, they didn't extend as far as like... Um, the Roman Empire or Alexander the Great as he went to conquer as far as he went. So now, though, they have all these uh, kingdoms subdued and it isn't, it isn't his job to conquest anybody anymore, defend the borders. What is his job? Now you have to learn how to manage everything. Before David, all they were were surviving farmers and shepherds. They just, they just tried to survive and hide from their enemies. They got tired of having to be beaten up by their enemies, so they raised up a king so they could be like everybody else who could unite the country to fend off all of their enemies. And they did that. They fought all their enemies. David won. Now there are no enemies, and now he's got to maintain everything, which is a totally different skill set. And it's his job to figure it all out. A couple things about that. 
One is when you're doing something new, it's way different to manage something that's already established. Mindy and I learned this when we came to plant a church. We started, we didn't know what we were doing. We were going to start a church, and all of a sudden, we didn't know how to take up an offering. So our first service, it's like, we have to get a couple of people to count and just sign this envelope that there's this much money in here, and we'll get it to the right person to get it into the bank. But I didn't count the money, right? But I didn't even think through, how do you take up an offering in a way that it's secure and everybody's above reproach so that nobody gets accused of taking the money out, putting it in their pocket, right? We had to think of that on the spot because we hadn't planned for it, because we hadn't been doing it for 100 years. Now, if you're in a church that's established, all these practices and systems are in place. You don't have to begin them. So Solomon's in a place where everything has to be invented. How do you do anything? It's other than manage the military, He has to figure out, how is taxation handled? How much tax? How is it collected? How is it fair? How much does he get paid? How much does administration get paid? How much should it be to to, uh, build a temple? Who has to work a lot? Who has to work little? Where am I going to get the supplies? How do I keep the people happy? How do I make sure that every case that that they need isn't all come to me? Right? All of this has to come into place where he has to figure out how to do all this like this. So early in his kingdom, he has to figure this all out. Now, I just started binge-watching a series on Netflix. How many of you guys are binge-watchers? About half the congregation. You guys are missing out. Anyway, um, <clears throat> so I, I mean, I see this little, you go to Netflix, and one of the, it does kind of drive me nuts is like, you can't scroll through things to watch without the preview happening in every single thing you touch. Well, it happened to one that I touched. It was a designated survivor. And literally, the, the law says, this is during the Cold War, they had figured out that if there was a nuclear bomb that hit Washington, D.C. during the State of the Union speech, it would wipe out the president, the vice president, the Supreme Court, and all of Congress, and many others in power the cabinet, everybody all at once. So they put a rule in place to have a first and second uh, designated survivor. One would be a cabinet member of the president's cabinet that he would become president if everybody is wiped out. And the second one was somebody they picked from Congress that would be in another hiding place. And so the, the, the film starts where this guy is the secretary of education on the cabinet And he's just been told, we no longer want you. We're going to move you to an ambassador in Montreal. And um, so after today, you're going to be done being the Secretary of Education. So right now, we want you to be the designated survivor and put him in a room. And he's watching the speech. And he's kind of bummed because he he really cares about HUD and all that kind of stuff. And he's watching. All of a sudden, television goes out. Doesn't know what goes on. Secret Service rushes in. He opens the window and sees the Capitol is bombed. Suddenly, he's rushed somewhere, and he becomes president of the United States. They swear him in on the Bible, and instantly, he is the president of the United States with no Supreme Court, no Senate, no Congress, no cabinet, and an enemy that nobody knows who it is. What would you pray? Could be different things. Oh, God, choose somebody else. Right? But even then, it would be like, God, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. Because I don't have a clue what I'm doing. 
And it doesn't matter who you are. If you live very long at all, your senior year of high school when you're trying to figure out where you're going to go to college, you get in this place. God, tell me what to do. And every one of my kids, when they hit that senior year so far, every one of them have panicked. Because the year before, they knew what to do. You go to your senior year of high school, you get your, your high school pictures taken, you go through graduation, you go to class, you do your homework, and try and get through your last year of high school. But once you enter that last year of high school, the next year isn't a given. And all of a sudden, they're like, ba-bump, 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 ba-bump. I got to find a place to live on my own. I got to find out what college I'm going to. I got to figure out what I'm going to do the rest of my life right now. And I find my kids praying, Oh God, what do I do? So this is where Solomon is at. What do I do? I don't know where I'm going, where I'm coming from. I don't know anything here. I don't know what to do. So give me the ability, the wisdom to know the right answers. And so then God answers him. Starting in verse 10. It pleased the Lord that Solomon asked this and God said to him, because you have asked this and not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies. Right? Those are three things he didn't ask for. So if you get your genie in the Bible wish and God appears to you in a dream and says, what do you wish for? Don't ask him to kill anyone. Right? It'll please him if you're asking for wisdom, not to kill your enemies or long life or riches. But then he continues and says, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. That's really important, that word right. Versus what? Wrong, right? So keep that in place. Behold, I now do according to your word. I'm going to give you wisdom. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall rise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no king shall ever compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways and keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. I will give you long life as well. There's a big if in there. Now, as you kind of go through this, this is really interesting because he's asking for wisdom. Where Now, the, the fascinating thing is, this is why I'm doing the stories from the beginning all the way through the establishment of the church. So you see the threads that are telling the story, that are the, the authors are weaving in here for you to see God's plan all the way through here, right? Solomon is just made king. And if you read the passages here, you will find out it wasn't a smooth transition. His older brother tried to take the kingdom before his father was dead. Anointed himself king. And then Bathsheba comes in and says, Solomon's mom said, I thought my son was going to be king, right? And when you've got many wives and you're the king and many wives with many sons, that is a husband's place I would never want to be in. Between many wives angry at me. One is plenty, right? So he is now with this woman coming to him and saying, I thought you said my son was going to be king, right? So he anoints he makes sure Solomon is made king, blows the trumpets, all this fanfare, and all of his brother's men run and hide because now they know Solomon's king, which means if he is, they're all dead. 
That's the way things happened in ancient times. You killed your opponents. And so they all vanish, and he actually spares his brother's life for a while. You know, read the story and see what happens. But he is like, now is he the legitimate choice of God to be the king in David's place? Or was it the brother that he ended up killing? Or another brother that should have been, that died earlier that was tried to overtake David's kingdom? So the legitimacy of his position is why this story is written here so that the readers would know Solomon is God's choice. And this happens for a number of reasons. One is obviously for the stability of the kingdom, but also for us to understand is through the promise of Abraham is is through your seed would be many kings and a savior who would win the world back to God himself that your descendants will be like the, the, the seashore and through your seed shall all the world be blessed. The promises of Messiah weaves all the way through the Bible. Here, you have King David, an establishment of that same covenant through David, saying you will never lack a child that will sit on your throne. Your throne shall last forever, right? So that's got to come through a descendant of David, which we know from our standpoint, looking backwards, it's Solomon. But this point, not everybody knew that. All right? Now, another thing. Where is the word wisdom first mentioned in the Bible? Guesses? Genesis chapter 3. The serpent comes in the garden. He challenges Adam, challenges Eve and says, can you eat from any tree in the garden? And she says, any tree but the, the one is the knowledge of what? Good and evil, right and wrong, right? Because she recognized that on her own, we do not have the ability, she didn't have the ability, neither do we, to know the difference between right and wrong. We need somebody to tell us. Solomon's saying, I don't know the difference between right and wrong. What's the right thing to do here? I need your help. Eve didn't go to God saying, I don't know the difference between right and wrong. This magic fruit is going to give me the ability to be like God and know right and wrong. Problem is, is even because of what she did, even if you do know right from wrong, we lack the ability to always do it. Is there any votes in here that anybody want to volunteer and say, when I know what's right, I always do what's right. Is there anybody here that, you know, when you're not supposed to do something, you say, ixnay, I never do the thing that's wrong because I just know I'm not supposed to do that. Right? We are all guilty. So here at the Garden of Eden, the word wisdom comes up in a negative way. That she wants, to, she wants the craftiness of the serpent, the ability to know on my own, the difference between what's right and what's wrong, to do, to be able to know within myself what to do. And that's what we all want. I don't want to depend on somebody else who may not come through for me. That's the challenge of trusting God, is what if he doesn't show up and I'm seen as a fool or I screw everything up because I didn't know what to do, I'm waiting on God to tell me, he doesn't come through, I would rather just know the answers on my own. And so mankind throughout history, we increase in learning and understanding and abilities so that we can make the best choices for ourselves always. That is called 
worldly wisdom, according to Paul especially, that the wisdom of the world is nothing compared to the wisdom of God. Solomon doesn't just, I mean, he could learn from his father and, and you know, maybe, you know, Abraham or uh, actually um, Moses on administrating, making sure there's certain numbers of people that judge, but there's a limitation and you don't know that that's the right thing to do in this period of history just because it worked in a different time. So what do we do right now with the position that we're in? And so Solomon is granted wisdom and amazing amounts of wisdom. And then it goes through and starts telling stories to demonstrate his wisdom, which might be, seem a little bizarre to us when you read the stories because we would never decide the same way. But for that period of time, no one else was able to think through things the way he did and make wise, discerning decisions. But like I said, the beginning, here's, the, again, the, the essence of the problem of mankind, all of us, is that we can't tell the difference between what's right and wrong on our own. But we want to because we don't trust that God is going to tell us when we need to know. So we try and make life work without God, and it doesn't. So then Solomon, who becomes the wisest person in the history of the world at this point, ends up writing out a lot of his wisdom. And what's interesting is is he finds out that wisdom isn't the key to making life all that great. He writes a whole book on trying to figure out what life's all about. It's called Ecclesiastes. He says it's all vanity. It's all worthless. Everything I've tried, I've tried wine, women, song, intellect, wealth. He had everything. You ever wonder how you look at people like in Hollywood that have fame, power, they have all the money they need, and how many of them are never happy? How many of them die early because they can't cope with life and they're taking meds to try and cope with life that kill them early? Isn't it astounding that we want what they have and yet they don't live very long with what we want? You would think that after getting married one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times or whatever, sometimes that that would bring happiness, but it doesn't. They can buy whatever they want and they're not happy. Solomon discovers this and he writes this whole book wisely laying this out that in the end, the only thing life is worth is following God and knowing his commandments, doing his, his will. And so he writes out that book of wisdom, but I want to go to a couple of Psalms here. And if you go to a Psalm 10, or 9, sorry, 9 verses 10. And this is written several places. Solomon wrote this many times. Um, and it just starts at, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Because it starts out at this basic understanding that you can't get wisdom from the world to make life work in a world that was made supernaturally by a God who really does know what's right and wrong, what's true and false. There's only, you have to know him in order to discover these things, which means knowing him is wisdom. 
Now, the interesting thing about the Bible is, is that the personification of wisdom is transformed once you get to the Psalms because it's seen as a bad thing in the beginning because desire for wisdom is what got Adam and Eve and screwed up the whole human race. Then you've got Solomon asking for wisdom from the right person, from God himself. And then he understands that knowing God himself is to know wisdom because when you write, read in the Psalms, it's, it starts personifying wisdom as a person. Matter of fact, it says a she all right, And you start, the personification of wisdom is something the Jews started seeing, this thing that eventually turns into the logos, the understanding of the word. And then when you get to when Jesus is, uh, arrives, John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The Jews were totally prepared to see this all the way through and chose not to. But they expected wisdom to arrive in a person that was the Messiah, God himself. To know Jesus is to know the wisdom that is in the Psalms, is to know the wisdom that Solomon asked for. And he said the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord, to know God himself. All right, To know God himself is the beginning of wisdom, who is the source to give you all that you need when you need it. Now, when we don't think that we're going to get the knowledge we need when we need it, you know what we're doing? We're saying, I'm smarter than God. I know when I need it better than he knows when I need it. See what that happened there? We switch. Even in our searching for God's answers, we're still worldly. We are so wise within ourselves that we know when we need God's answers before he knows. And then because he doesn't answer in the timely fashion that we constructed for God, our servant God, we bail on him because we don't trust him. But if you know him, you would trust him. And this gets to the question again, that if you were asked, if God would give you anything you wanted, what would you want? And I had come to this conclusion several years ago that I only want one thing. I want to know God as well as humanly possible. Because if I know him, I know I can wait. I know that his answers are good. I know that he's got my back. I know that he cares for me. And even when things go bad, there's some reasons for it that will make sense later because I can trust him. But I don't trust him because I don't know him well enough. So I read this in this book one time. Matter of fact, you guys went to the conference where this, this line is so famous. You guys, uh, Larry Crabb wrote this. And in a prayer after his brother died, he said, God, I know you're all I have, but I don't know you well enough to be all I need. Brilliant statement. God, I know you're all I have, but I don't know you well enough to let you be everything I need. And I read that statement, I said, oh my gosh, that's me. I only need one thing. I know you're all I have. I have nowhere else to go. Nothing else is going to give me eternal life. There's no doctor on earth that's going to let my life go on. Nobody on earth that's going to ensure that I can see my children after I die, or my wife after I die, or all of you, or how to even get through this life of just crippling pain, loneliness, and suffering, how do I get through this when I don't really trust that God is the one that can take me through this? It is really important that you know 
God well enough that you can trust him. And what did Solomon say? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now I want to go one more one step further. Go to Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1. This is my son, if you accept my words and start my commands with you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding. Indeed, if you call out for insight and cry out for understanding and you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find knowledge of God. You're going to find God himself. But you must search for it like you do silver or wealth or treasure. Now, the truth is, we find more ways to find our, more time finding ways to be secure financially than we ever do to be secure in our relationship with God. And we got it backwards because the money only takes you from here till you stop breathing. And as we've seen, I said, people with a lot of money aren't always all that happy. Some are, but it isn't because of the money. If money is their God, they will never be happy. Because there are limits. Money can only do so much for you. There are times, and many of I talked about just where we are in life, they're just, sometimes it can be really frustrating. I went to school, got my college degree, taught, went to seminary, got two degrees, and I can find people who didn't go to college at all making quite a bit more than me. And it can be frustrating, but, the, but Mindy and I talked about it. It's like, but we love what God has done with our life, with what we have. And in many ways, we're just totally glad that we don't have that much. I have never in my, I'm 56 years old, so I'm, I've been driving since I was 18, right? Never, ever owned a new car. And you know what? Probably never will. And I'm okay. Don't need a new car. I just need a car to turn on when I tell it to turn on, get me where I'm going, and turn off when I turn it to turn off without crashing and dying in the middle, hopefully with a little bit of air conditioning and heat when I need it. That's what I need. Right? There are many things I don't have. And it's okay. We, it's somehow in the struggle of not having enough that's, that's done something in Mindy and I that, that couldn't have happened if we replaced that relationship with enough money. It also just causes us to explore relationships with our children differently. How do you take vacations when you have nothing? Because many times we had nothing. We have these awesome memories of finding ways to take vacations when we just couldn't afford to do anything except go find and do something for free. But if I spend all my time, and, and what I want for my kids, I want them to know God as well, not how to earn a lot of money. I don't want them to figure out how to have a good life apart from God because it doesn't exist. So I'd rather them go without and find out that life only makes sense in relationship with a living God. Without him, nothing makes sense. Because without him, everything is just hanging on to the things that I can't keep anyway, whether it's people, relationships, jobs, money, possessions, just all of it. It just can be gone. Health. 
all can be gone. The one pursuit of your life that should consume more of your time and energy than anything else is a pursuit of God himself, which is wisdom personified. If you know him, you can trust him. But we'd rather spend time to get the other things that we trust more. And if we're honest with that, we can say, God, forgive me. I need to trust you more. But I don't know how. Will you help me? Now, the search for wisdom for everybody except Jesus and Solomon is a time-consuming process. Unless one of you guys had a dream the other night and asked for wisdom. Because the one who was just given wisdom told everybody else to seek for it like treasure. Which, last I took, even a any type of game where you've got to seek something like Easter eggs or whatever still takes time. It isn't like your kids wake up, if you hit their Easter basket, you hit it right next to their shoes next to the bed. Why search, why search for something if it's so easy to find? The search for God and the search for wisdom is going to take time. And what I've learned over the course of my life is this. <clears throat> I have always wanted to be wise. Long before I was a Christian, I wouldn't be the one that had the answers. And unfortunately, I spoke long before the answers, telling everybody all that I knew when I knew nothing, and still sometimes have that habit. But I longed for wisdom. I want the right answers. I want to know what to do at the right time, in the right place, in the right way. I always wanted to be able to know that. And something happened when I became a Christian in my third year of college that changed the way I think forever. At that moment, I can just see it clearly that the way I thought, I started just reading the scriptures because this was the best way to simply know a lot of the rights from the wrongs. But the way I thought about the things in the Bible and the way I thought about interaction with people and the way it was, it was revelations of what life is really about and how you engage and, and the ability to have the power to honestly admit how wrong I am and survive. You know, like there's things we don't want to admit about ourselves and God is patient because he wants to grow you to the place where you can see you for who you really are and then you can deal with Over 35 years of being a Christian, or nearly 35 years of being a Christian, it will be this December 23rd, I can look back and think, oh, I know all this stuff that I know if it wasn't for that one moment 35 years ago. I would not know it. I would still be struggling just to figure out how to make life work if I was willing to live long enough to figure it out at all. Because there's definitely times I did not want to live. The promise of God that you know him, that you trust him, automatically comes with wisdom, but it comes with time. Because everybody else wants to give you their wisdom, right? Right? And sometimes it's good, but sometimes it's bad. But even when somebody gives you wisdom, you're like, I don't know what to do, his idea or her idea. Right? There's something in knowing God that helps you sort those things out over time. That when you know him, you trust him. That you need to know the answers when you need to know them. 
I have made, I can almost like, a, I could write a book of every time I made a decision because I was pressured to make the decision right now, it has always been wrong. And it's a great sales technique because I bought many things I shouldn't have bought because they want to give you the deal right now. I made the mistake on our honeymoon with a timeshare and was stupid enough to do it again. And a vacuum salesman. I paid enough for that vacuum. I could have bought a car on my budget. I mean, I make mistakes when I'm pressured that I need to make the decision now. And that means that I'm trusting in whatever wisdom the salesman is giving me or whatever person or whatever situation set up where you have to decide now. I've learned, take a deep breath, step back, and God doesn't make me make decisions that I don't know how to make that I trust God well enough over the course of years, I know him well enough that when I need to know the answer, he will provide the wisdom to make the right decision in its right time. But when you make decisions right now, you're only proving that you don't trust that God will provide you that answer. You've got to do it now or you'll miss out or you'll lose the deal or you'll ruin this relationship or whatever. That God provides you with the answers when you need them if you know him, wisdom personified. If you don't know him, you will not find wisdom. You will just struggle with, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? That's a horrible way to live. And many Christians do the same thing. They don't spend any time in this book. They don't spend, and like me, I spent years walking out my Christian life without any time in prayer. And I, I struggle with prayer. But I, I've, like I know some of you, you hear God. Like me, it's like... I don't, but it's amazing how often that when I just sit in silence, I God, I don't know what to do. I don't hear him, but somehow I come out of that with a confidence of knowing what I should do, even though I didn't hear anything. I just suddenly see things clearer. It's just different for everybody. But wisdom is found in the voice of God however you hear it. But you don't hear it if you don't know him and you don't search for him, and you don't give it your all. Your whole life pursuit should be about knowing him. Your whole life pursuit. And there's some people that's going to sound crazy, but I promise you, it's not. To not do it is crazy because the cost is too great. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, personally, I thank you for completely changing my life. For making life up as I go along and stumbling through life. To showing me that you are a God that is real and can be trusted. 
I will never be grateful enough. But I ask you, Father, that you would make yourself known to everybody in this room. At least to that degree, if not more. That we would all be stirred to a level to say, I need to pursue you. I need to give up whatever I'm holding on to that I need to trust you. And for those, Father, who are struggling, they don't know if they can believe or trust you, I pray, Lord, that they would just say, God, teach me to trust you. If you're real, show me. There are people in this room that would say, God, as much as I'm able, my life is yours. I give you my life as best as I know how. This moment, my life is yours. Help me to know you. That you would walk with me through this life. And that I would have the confidence to go through life not know, knowing that I don't need to know all the answers. All I need to do is know you and you will give me everything I need to know in its time. I pray, Lord Jesus, do this for the people in this room and for those that listen. And may all of us walk out with such a level of gratitude that we would never keep this a secret, that there would be other people who need to know that you are wisdom personified. You are everything we need. In Jesus' name, amen. At this time, we'll take communion. And for those that may know and may not know that Communion is something Jesus asked us to do to remember the cost so that we might know him. That we can have a relationship wasn't free. It's just a price we didn't have to pay. It was paid, but he wants us to remember that cost, that his broken body that was destroyed for our benefit, that his blood was spilled and, and poured out for our forgiveness. And so if um, the elders would um, go ahead and get the communion, Thank you, Dan and Greg. They will share communion during these um, songs of worship. Just be in your own space, alone with God. And just, you know, say, God, I want to be in the right place with you. And then whenever you feel like you can, just take the communion and, and do this, as Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, of his broken body and his spilled blood for our benefit.
Close like no 
You give life, you are love, you bring light to the darkness, you give hope, you restore every heart that is broken.
It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you. created the world and everything in it. You created each one of us, knowing us from our innermost parts. You know every struggle that we have. You know us inside and out. You know our past and you know our future. You know our highs and our lows. You know our greatest happiness, our worst fears, and our greatest shame. And you love us anyway. Your greatness, your great kindness, your great love, your great forgiveness is all given to us if we want it. 
And I pray, Lord, that we never forget all your greatness. That we never forget how much you love us. And with every breath, I pray, Lord, that we pursue you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that we leave here different than the way we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. to go back and get your kids so don't forget about them while you are driving home with your kids talk about the message that we heard today which was um what does it mean to be after god's own heart you know david was said to be a man after god's own heart and what does that mean talk to them about that and through this week in your own prayer time with god or in your reflection um think about how are you being an example of what it means to be a man after god's or woman after god's own heart um and how can you be that type of person. Um, and maybe you can also be, like, I was thinking as I was sitting here, actually, um, not just how we are examples to our kids, but how our kids can be examples to us. Hadassah loves Jesus and God, and she talks about them all the time, all, and it's always with such joy. She always tells me she has such joy in her heart. And you know how, like, if you casually are having conversations about something, and, you, you know, people are, like, maybe debating, and you're like, well, who knows? Well, if we ever say that, Hadassah always says very seriously, God knows. I'm like, okay, yeah, you're right, he does. So think about that through this week. Talk to your kids about it. How are we examples of being after God's own heart, and how are they examples, and what, how can we do that? Um, next week, we have partnership meeting. So after church, you're going to stay here, hang out. We will have food. It will be a little different than usual because it will be individually plated things, but we will still be here um, eating and chatting. And we, you should have received the budget in your email, and if you didn't, there are copies on the table over here. Um, and if you aren't receiving the emails and want to make sure you are, you can fill out a C3 and make sure your email is up to date. Or if you just want to add any comments about how the me children's messages or anything are going, how that's working in your family, um, C3 over there as, long, as well as the offering box. And then after the partnership meeting, we'll decorate for Christmas, right? <laughs> no, no. That's what I would like to do. I would love to decorate for Christmas after the partnership meeting, but we have a while. I fully support so, that, Tina. Thank you. Woo, yeah, Kristen. Okay. Anyway, don't forget your children on the way out, and I love you all, and I hope you have a great week.